Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Hensley-McBain. Today's episode is the final part of a four-part series entitled Managing HIV in Aging Patients, Answering the Questions. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational program on caring for aging patients with HIV. This program consists of video logs on individual patient cases, each highlighting challenges rendered by a select comorbidity or set of comorbidities in an older patient with HIV. Today's faculty will refer back to their recent vlogs as they introduce the topics for today's discussion. During this episode, Dr. Howard Grossman from Florida Atlantic University and Midway Specialty Care in Wilton Manors, Florida, and Professor Christina Mussini from the University of Medina and Reggio Emilia in Medina, Italy, will answer infectious disease specialists' most pressing questions on caring for patients aging with HIV. For more information about our expert faculty and for a link to their video logs, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started with a brief introduction from each of our expert faculty on current challenges they encounter when caring for patients aging with HIV in their clinical practice, starting with Dr. Howard Grossman. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Really appreciate it. Um, And hello to everybody. Um, So here are today's topics. Um, Obviously, the proportion of patients living with HIV who are over 50 years of age is growing around the world. And aging with HIV represents a a new uh, challenge for increasing burdens of comorbidities and treatment adverse events. Um, Today, we're going to look quickly at um, at pieces of our V-logs that look at vaccine recommendations for aging patients with HIV infection, fragility fractures and bone health in aging patients with HIV infection, and we'll touch on the impact of some racial disparities and social determinants of health on HIV, uh, on the care, HIV in the care of aging patients. Um, in my vlog, I talked about um, vaccines and the, the importance of vaccines, which I think is something that often gets ignored when we're treating our HIV patients and worried about their viral loads and T cells. Um, this slide actually shows you from the CDC um, the, the rates of vaccine um, uh, distribution in the US. And you can see that the rates have stayed fairly flat over the last more than a decade. Uh, We do okay with influenza vaccine and tetanus, although we're still only at 60% coverage. Um, But for things like herpes zoster vaccine, Tdap, um, pneumococcal vaccine in patients at increased risk, we're at very, very low numbers and really something we need to, um, to refocus our attention on. Uh, I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Messina, uh, who's going to speak about uh, bone fractures. Uh, yes, good afternoon. For me, it's good afternoon. Um, so in, in my vlog, I spoke about a woman who was uh, 43, and uh, she was in perimenopause. And uh, we discussed about the uh, problem of fragility fracture. So what are fragility fractures? Um, We thought that, I mean, the definition of uh, fragility fracture is that uh, it occurs from a fall from standing, from standing A or or less, and is a strong predictor of future fracture. That's why in our clinical practice, we have absolutely to evaluate correctly the risk of the occurrence of this fracture. These are the AX guidelines of the European AIDS Clinical Society uh, saying what we should do in our uh, clinical practice in order to screen for osteoporosis. 
for example, we should perform uh, every six or 12 months uh, calcium monitoring um, or also um, the uh, alkaline phosphatase and the phosphorus. Also the FRAX risk, you know that it's uh, uh, computerized, so very easy to do. And the assessment should be performed every two years, especially if we don't have the availability of uh, asking for our patient to do uh, a DEXA scan, uh, because also DEXA scan in the guidelines should be performed every two years. Uh, we have to ask uh, which is uh, the uh, everyday life of our patient, uh, their diet, for example, we have to ensure that they have an adequate intake of calcium and vitamin D. Uh, I am in the, in the country of the sun, but I have to say that we spend most of our time indoors. So all of us have a vitamin D deficiency, not only HIV, um, people living with HIV. Um, and we have to consider also in the presence of osteoporosis and of a high risk of fracture uh, to prescribe um, diphosphonate. Thanks so much. Um, unfortunately, as, as you heard, Dr. Ojikutu could not be with us today. Uh, her vlog focuses on racial disparities uh, in HIV. Uh, and this slide here shows, um, again, that, uh, you know, the um, um, Black population in the U.S. is disproportionately affected by HIV. Um, but not only that, there is uh, um, a, a lack of access to health care and other reasons that have, um, that, that mean that, that um, significant numbers of people, uh, lower numbers of people, uh, have received some HIV care or retained in care and are virally suppressed. Uh, and this is something that's been a challenge for decades now um, and hopefully will get uh, addressed now that the CDC is in different hands um, because this is a real problem and this is where the disease is spreading most uh, uh, often in the US. Um, in my vlog, I also talked about the difference um, along racial and ethnic um, um, lines for access to vaccines uh, and how people of color do not have nearly the same um, access to vaccines that white people have. And again, a, a, an important racial disparity in care. Um, that's it for, for our presentation today. Our, I'm gonna turn it back to Tiffany because we're going to get into questions and answers. Thank you very much, Dr. Grossman and Professor Mussini. So the first question is, how do you counsel your patients with frailty or low bone density on fracture prevention? So Dr. Mussini, we'll start with you on that one. I think that it's very important to understand which is uh, the um, everyday life of our patient. So the usual thing, the very classical thing is just uh, they have to do exercise, uh, and the exercise should not be, you know, agonistic one. It's just that you have to walk and it's important to, you know, use your weight because the bones, uh, you know, rearrange themselves when you, you put weight on them. So it, it's important to ask patients to, um, to walk a certain number of, you know, you know in all our, in all our phone, we have this app uh, that, that tell us uh, how many uh, steps uh, we took during the day. So it's a very 
you know, it, it's very easy to cancel this. And uh, also to ask about the diet, so a correct uh, in, intake, uh, as I said, uh, of calcium, uh, of vitamin D. The vitamin D, as I said, we, we monitor it. Uh, and in most of the cases, we have to supplement it because uh, it, we live uh, indoor. And uh, so it's very complicated to reach uh, adequate, uh, adequate levels of vitamin D. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, when you monitor the patient, if you discover that the patient has, uh, you know, a certain age, for example, a woman in menopause, and uh, it's important also to evaluate for fracture that are not reported by the patient. So we perform the X-ray of the spine, the dynamic X-ray of the spine, and uh, because these fractures are not, uh, you know, it's not like if you break uh, a finger, so it's easy to, to know and to report. And uh, we had uh, really bad news from the X-ray of the spine. And uh, it's not only about us, also in many other centers, it's totally inexpensive for us to do the X-ray, much, much less expensive than the DEXA scan. And uh, so we can go from osteoporosis to fracture very easily in a very inexpensive way because with the DEXA, maybe you saw that the patient was, in a, it was at higher risk of fracture, but then you document that he has a fracture and you can prescribe um, alendronate, for example, diphosphonate and alendronate. I think I think those micro fractures uh, in the spine are so much more common than we know as a cause for for back pain that we see so frequently. Um, I actually have a question for you, Dr. Rossini, because uh, we talk about um, the we talk about doing all the screening and stuff mostly in terms of women. Um, what do you think we should be doing in our HIV positive men who are over fifty? I think that also. I mean, men are uh, uh, men with HIV are at a higher risk of osteoporosis than men without HIV. So the control should be in both uh, gender. And uh, I think that uh, um, if a, a patient, for example, they have to stop smoking, they have to uh, check for a bet better uh, lifestyle, obviously. And uh, so it's the same also for men, because we have to consider also drugs that they have been exposed to. If they were uh, AIDS patients, so late presenter, um, they had uh, a lower mineral density, for example. And uh, so I completely agree that it's not, any, we are always thinking about menopause because the idea is since menopause is such a high risk of uh, decrease in bone mass, uh, we should take uh, into consideration switching dangerous uh, um, treatment in the perimenopausal period, uh, because we know that naturally it comes with, uh, with menopause, uh, the decrease, so we don't have to, but now we don't have uh, drugs that are so harmful on the bone. This was something that we used to do when there was a uh, uh, tenofovir diproxyl fumarate, but now with TAF, this is not no longer, you know, required to switch. Great, thanks.
Thank you. Yeah, that leads into this next question, asking about a specific patient that is 74 years old with severe osteoporosis. Um, they ask, does dilutegravir plus FTC TAF have a cumulative effect on this problem? And would you switch or if, and if so, what would you switch to? So Dr. Grossman, you want to start with that one? Uh, well, I think uh, as, as Dr. Nassini was just saying that uh, when we um, uh, got Descovy rather than, than uh, we got it with tenofovir alafenamide rather than tenofovir dosaproxyl fumarate, the risk of, of bone uh, loss um, decreased tremendously. I, I don't think it goes to zero, but, um, but certainly it is less. So I'm not so sure you have to make any kind of change there. I completely agree. I have to say that I completely agree that now we will see from courts, I think, uh, the long-term uh, long effect uh, of these drugs uh, because in, in the trials are really reassuring. So we will see from court if there is an impact in the prevalence of osteoporosis in the patient. But we need more time. Thank you. And... Dr. Messini, you referred to uh, late presenters, and Mark says, in Los Angeles, we are seeing a number of persons over 50 with late-stage disease diagnosis, yet there are no prevention services specifically targeting persons over 50. How can we increase HIV, HIV prevention in this group? Dr. Messini? Yeah, we have the same problem, but now with the impact of COVID, we see almost only late presenter because uh, testing uh, is uh, less, is perceived as less important now. And uh, for last year, for example, we had only late presenter. It was like 80% of our new diagnosis because they could not stay away from the hospital because they were, you know, severely ill. But um, uh, the, the problem on testing is that until we will decide to perform, uh, to normalize, I would say, HIV testing, we should always rely on the perception of risk of the single person. And, uh, you know, never mind what they are doing, what is, which is, uh, uh, their, which are their habits. Uh, you know, one could perceive himself as extremely at risk with two partners and some others don't perceive themselves as at risk with 100 partners. And this is, uh, you know, independent from the fact, usually, you know, the MSM population um, less, frequently, less frequently present with, uh, present late because they have a higher perception of risk. But I have to say that sometimes this is not true. We have uh, uh, high numbers of heterosexual because we have high numbers of uh, migrants, for example, and uh, they, they are scared about HIV or they arrive in Italy that they are negative and then they acquire HIV in Italy because they come from many countries that, uh, that are sexophobic. Uh, and when they arrive to Italy, when it's much easier to have sex, uh, you know, it's like uh, a never ending party. But then after years, they discover that this never-ending party, uh, you know, uh, gave them HIV. So it's uh, something really complicated because it really depends on the perception of risk. And even if there is a, 
the, um, um, the indicator diseases uh, uh, that could help clinician in, uh, uh, in requiring, in asking for uh, an HIV test, uh, all of them uh, imply that the patient uh, is already symptomatic. Uh, maybe not with AIDS, but it has, uh, I don't know, a zoster, it has uh, an hepatitis, it has a lymphoma. Uh, so it's, uh, we should start uh, screening earlier people for HIV. I don't know what Dr. Grossman thinks about it. Well, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we have to make HIV testing a standard practice the same way we check blood pressure. Um, actually, we, most places in the U.S. have opt-out testing. You don't have to get consent anymore. So we actually put a sign in all our rooms saying that we test everybody for, everybody for HIV. You know, when you come for a physical, if you come as a new patient, we test everybody. And if people opt out, they tell us they don't want it. Um, but it becomes such a standard practice. Um, and I think you, you, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, people, first of all, people over 50, either may not have lived through the HIV epidemic. I mean, I had a guy yesterday who's 53 years old. He's just coming out of the closet. Um, so he really had no contact with the gay community, was living in a suburb somewhere in New York. And, um, you know, he's just learning his way. Um, so there's that group of people. Then there's the group of people, for example, the gay men who are in their 50s and 60s who say, well, I survived all these years. I'm doing everything right. And in fact, now that they're having erectile problems, they're not using condoms and they don't know about PrEP um, and they're at risk. And then you bring up the problem of migrant workers, which I think is a problem all over the world. I did a project in the far west of Nepal about 15 years ago, and there all the farmers in the winter went to India for, for work because they had no, no food at home. And because they were away from their families, they ended up having sex with prostitutes and things like that. And they brought back HIV, mostly infected their wives. Most of the men were dead at that point. So it was really an epidemic of women who were actually no longer having children. It was a completely different epidemic, but I think that migrant worker problem is a big one. Yeah, it's exactly the same because the, uh, the migrants, we discover that the man is infected because the wife gets pregnant and we have, I mean, it's, uh, you know, mandatory to perform an HIV test while you are pregnant in Italy. So it's, uh, we discover that she has HIV. Yeah. And so we test him. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, there are studies, there was a big study here in New York City where uh, well over 60% of people who tested positive had actually had an STD in the yeah. previous year, never got an HIV test. You know. So that's definitely something we need to do more of. So Dr. Grossman, you mentioned PrEP briefly. Um, can you share what are your experiences prescribing PrEP in aging patients? And are there any special considerations or concerns for patients over 50? Well, I think so many patients over 50 have compromised renal function. That's, that's I think, our biggest concern. Um, uh, you know, certainly with um, tenofovir um, allophenamide, we're able to go down to a uh, GFR of, of 30 and still prescribe it. So that that's a big plus. Um, but I, you know, I do have some patients who have even more compromised renal function. And while intermittent therapy is not, or, or on-demand therapy is not approved in the U.S., 
it, it's something I've used successfully with some of these patients so, because they, they, you know, they're 75 or 80 years old. They actually usually do plan their sexual activity. They can do the, the, the two pills two to 24 hours ahead of time and then take one pill to each of the next two days. So it does sort of fit with the way that they uh, have sex uh, and it doesn't compromise their renal function as much. Um, so, so I've done some of that, um, in, in people in their, in their, you know, fifties, sixties, most of my younger 70 year olds, it's, it has not been a problem. We do have a problem here because, uh, now that, that, um, um, that the medications have gone generic, uh, many insurance companies are trying to force people back to the tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, uh, and, and FTC. And, uh, and so we have to fight to get them, um, you know, the, the, the tenofovir which is, has a better renal profile. Great. Thank you. So we have a question about COVID-19 vaccination. How are you counseling your aging patients with HIV on COVID-19 vaccination, both safety and efficacy? Dr. Mussini, do you want to start with that one? Uh, yes, I have to say that it's not uh, so personal because it's something that has been decided by the state. Uh, so obviously I counsel everybody that they should undergo uh, a COVID-19 vaccination and especially the oldest one because we know like the obese one, we have learned which are the, uh, which are the, um, the risk factor for a bad prognosis with COVID-19. Uh, but in these patients really um, are included in the early uh, phase of vaccination program in Italy. Um, so below 65, they will arrive and they will have, they will have also the problem of uh, having patients. Uh, um, we have a priority for those who, who experience uh, uh, less than 200 CD4 in their life. So this has, has um, been put uh, as first priority. The other will go and get vaccinated on the basis of their age. So now we are, as I said, above 65. So I don't have to cancel. The, the vaccine hesitancy is amazing to me. Um, you know, I understand that people don't, people, you know, we're watching science and development and those of us in HIV, have been doing that for the last 35 years, watching it as it happens. Uh, but most people, I think, don't know how to deal with the confl conflicting data, with you know how to understand the the, the information. Um, uh, but it, it really, you know, I mean, I I'm old enough to remember the polio vaccine in the 50s, and uh, and everybody in the U.S. lined up at churches, at schools, at post offices to get that vaccine. There was no vaccine hesitancy. You just did it. That was what you did as a citizen. Uh, plus, people were so scared of polio that they that they that they did it. But you know, we don't live in that world anymore. Um, and I'm not sure what's what's going to happen with this. I think um, I tell patients it's fine. You know, you're refusing this because you don't perceive yourself to be at risk or you're worried about the vaccine. But the more of you who do that, the more this virus is going to mutate and possibly turn into something even deadlier. And and then the whole process starts over again. And they go, oh, yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they don't people don't realize that. So um 
but I, I counsel all my patients to get the vaccine. Uh, I have not seen anybody with HIV have um, significantly more problems. Uh, in fact, the people that I generally see get reactions tend to be younger people. Um, my medical system, my PA, both had big reactions to the Pfizer vaccine, headaches and body aches and things like that. I had no problem with it at all. Um, I am counseling people who, who have been infected if they're 90 days post-infection uh, to get the vaccine because I think the immune response is so much higher from the vaccine than from many infections. Great, thank you. Um, and Mohammed has submitted a question asking, what is the prognosis for older people with HIV who contract COVID-19? So what's the latest on the risk in persons with HIV? What's your experience, Dr. Messina? Yeah, I think that uh, it's not so easy to say because uh, the data on patients with HIV um, are not so well, uh, you know, analyzed uh, and divided by age because the numbers were relatively low. I think that, uh, you know, in uh, it's difficult to say, it depends on other risk factor. HIV per se, uh, I don't think that it's uh, a dramatic, uh, uh, you know, um, risk factor, especially because if you are a little bit immune suppressed, uh, you know, probably you can have uh, a lower cytokine storm. So it could be. But uh, the problem is that if you are old and you have, uh, you have all the comorbidities that we are used to see in our HIV patients, so your prognosis is related. Is re HIV is one of the many comorbidities that the patient has. So it's uh, a prognosis is in an older person if you get severe pneumonia, not just uh, SARS-CoV-2, but severe pneumonia is always worse, especially because uh, um, at least in my country, if you are older than 80, I would say 78, uh, you cannot uh, be intubated. So this is another thing uh, that, uh, it's another limit for prognosis because uh, if you are, you know, in a situation that needs intubation, but the intensive care unit doctors thinks that uh, you your risk of being intubated uh, to have a bad prognosis uh, is even higher that uh, without intubation, they do not take you to ICU. So this is also another problem. We call them patient at a therapeutic roof. You cannot go you know, further. And uh, if you are old, this therapeutic roof is much more probable than in a younger one, yeah. They say that, uh, well, you know, but this is all around Europe. Uh, I had uh, many discussions because, you know, we are always fighting with the intensive care unit doctor and saying, you know, something like, ah, but this patient was climbing mountains with the mountain bike uh, and he was perfect, uh, but no way. And since it's not up to me, but it's up to them to take the patient <laughs> to ICU, I have only to say, okay, but I'm the one, but no, I think that they, um, in most of the cases, they also come and talk to the relatives because, you know, they don't leave us alone. They say, okay, just organize uh, a meeting with the family and we will explain why we will not take him to ICU. So we hope, we had a very good result, for example, with tocilizumab, 
and uh, that we have used it since uh, the, the first wave, I think after the first month from April last year. And uh, so if uh, the patient is not uh, responding to desametazone, we give uh, them tocilizumab and if they don't answer also, they don't respond also to tocilizumab uh, and they are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, they are not, uh, trans it's not possible to transfer them to ICU. You know, there's no possibility. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, we were so worried at the beginning of this that people with HIV would be at huge increased risk. And I, I think it seems to me that, that the, the consensus is there is some increased risk, but it's not really that significant. Um, and certainly, like you, as you say, the, the other comorbidities far outweigh the, the risk. Um, uh, but I think I think many states here in the U.S. Because, because now we we're vaccinating many states are vaccinating 18 and over. Um, that um, you know we are fortunate and we we have to really realize that to have enough vaccine to do that here in this country, which a lot of countries just don't have. I don't think people realize how dire the situation is around the world, and that you know, that if you could only do compulsory licensing um, of, of the vaccines and let countries start to produce this themselves, that we could really make an end to this epidemic. But, but we are lucky here. Um, but, um, you know, there were many places that put HIV on the high risk list, uh, list to, as, as things were opening up to give the vaccine earlier. So, um, you know, like I said, I think people with HIV can, especially people whose immune systems are intact, can feel very comfortable um, that there it is. Thank you. Um, so Mark asks, can you comment on HPV vaccinations? The age categories keep increasing. And for persons with a history of HPV exposure, I think we should consider vaccinating persons over 50. Dr. Grossman, do you want to comment on that? Uh, well, I'm a strong believer in HPV vaccine, and you know um, I think, but the, we only have data up to the age of 45, and that's why the the the, the vaccine is now approved for people up to 45 mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, I happen to agree that given the number of serotypes of of HPV, that even if people are infected with some, they may not have all of them, and, uh, and that it's still. I took the vaccine myself, and I was about 55. Um, and felt very comfortable doing it. It seems to be such a safe and effective vaccine that I don't really see the downside other than cost. Um, and certainly HPV causes so much disease um, that, that it, it's, a, it's always made sense to me. But if you do it over the age of 45, people just need to know that they may need to pay out of pocket for it in this country, certainly. What's your experience, Dr. Rossini? Yeah, no, for us it's free for HIV is free, and it's free also for uh, uh, all MSM and uh, whatever the, their age is. And oh. uh, I really think that uh, this is very, very important. And it's, uh, you know, it, the problem is that some people do not realize their, uh, you know, sexual, you know, orientation until later. So it's not that all the young one, uh, uh, you know, gets vac vaccinated. So I think that it's very useful to extend uh, the, the, the years. We have the, the, the people that are the one 
in charge of doing vaccination that comes to our department and they vaccinate uh, uh, by appointment uh, all our patients. And uh, I think that it's very, very important. I was curious about the data that you showed in your slide. Um, this is the general population, but what about HIV? Do you think that it's different from the general population? Because I was just curious. I think people with HIV tend to get vaccinated even less. Um, I think that was the, the slide showed people 19 to 64 with Pneumovax who were at higher risk. I mean, we should be vaccinating our HIV patients. I think those are those patients that are very low level. Uh, you know, I think so often in medicine, we get caught up in, you know, HIV patients, how many times do you hear them say, uh, all that they talk to me about is my T cells and my viral load. I mean, I have the same problem with transgender patients. All they get talked about is hormone therapy and nobody talks to them about their other comorbidities. They don't talk about vaccines. And, you know, um, you know, I, I just think that they're very important. Thank you. So Jack asks from the UK with, uh, aging persons with HIV who are admitted to the hospital due to age-related problems, who do you think should be the owning physician, the age-related physician or the HIV physician? So I, I think that'll probably vary by country and region, but um, could you just comment on your experiences with coordinating care like that? Yes, you know, this is very funny. I was laughing because uh, it's independent from what I think. Because I think that it should be a geriatrician that could take care of someone. Just because they have HIV, they send them to us. So whatever is the problem, even if they have a broken leg. So it's just, I think that it's, you know, in my view, it should be the specialist. But now it's just getting a little bit better. Because, you know, they always say that when... You know, when you perceive something more different uh, than the different before, you know, you, you just normalize the first one. So now with co they are really all focused on, on, on not having COVID positive patients. So the HIV are good. Uh, it's okay. They can take HIV patients because they don't want the COVID one. So they leave us the COVID one, uh, you know, just because they don't want and they, they can take the HIV one. So maybe this will change the mentality. I don't know what's in the US, uh, in, uh, in Italy is like this. Well, I, I, I'm a primary care physician internist and uh, plus HIV. So, you know, I, I can sort of do all of those things. Um, but, you know, to me, that person who's in for a cardiac reason, I actually agree with you. I think a geriatrician would be the perfect person because they would have a whole team behind them to deal with this person being 81 and all their comorbidities. Um, but I think if they're just in for an MI, then really the cardiologist should be the one in charge. Uh, that's the problem. And, and as an HIV specialist, if you're worried about drug interactions, oh, I don't know why they can't look up drug interactions on their own. Uh, but, you know, uh, but yeah, you could call me for, for consult. <laughs> Thank you for your experience, sharing your experiences on that. So I think we have time for about one more question. Um, so how are you engaging or re-engaging your patients with HIV who dropped out of care in the past year during the COVID, during COVID-19? We are calling all of them. Mm -hmm. We have called them. We have checked uh, who did not show. 
uh, and uh, we are calling all of them. Now, at the beginning, they were very scared of coming to the hospital because they, there was the lockdown and they were like, oh, no, I don't want to get uh, uh, COVID. Uh, but then uh, I restarted my ambulatory in presence uh, since face-to-face uh, -face ambulatory since September, last September, because I got so bored of calling the patient and I want to see them. You know, I'm an old, old HIV doctor. I'm, follow, I'm still following 300 patients myself. And we are almost family. So it, it's important for them to see me and for me to see them. Right. You know, we, um, you know, Florida is a land unto itself. But uh, we, we basically shut down pretty much for, for only a month at the beginning um, doing telemedicine. Uh, then, but we had to bring people in for laboratories, and so we would bring in, have them park in the parking lot. We were a freestanding building. We, we had them park in the parking lot, bring them in the back door one at a time into the lab, get the blood out the door, um, and that. But then we realized that we were having people coming in, and we and and it, while telemedicine works, and I think it works great for something like prep, for example. Um, I, you know, I'm an old fashioned doctor too. I like to lay hands on and, and it's not the same when you're doing it over telemedicine. We were lucky because we were able to manage people that way. And so we really did not lose a lot of patients, um, did not lose touch with them. We were able to stay on top of it. Um, um, I know a lot of, uh, HIV patients though did, um, get lost in different systems and uh, people are reaching out. We, go, we have a great case manager who stays in touch with people and a pharmacist who calls people about their medications. So that, that's been very you know, fortunate to keep people engaged in care. Thank you very much, Dr. Grossman and Professor Mussini. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. If you would like to view the short video logs on specific patient cases recorded by these expert faculty, visit the Clinical Care Options website by clicking on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks!